Hi, I'm Andy Bush, and you're listening to Through the Decades, a podcast that takes a nostalgic trip down memory lane with some of my favourite people. Each week, my guest and I will be starting in the 60s before going to the 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties, 10s, and back to the present day as they share their stories of how each decade has shaped their lives and made them what they are today. Joined by comedian and top impressionist John Colshaw. Hello there, how nice to talk to you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, John, it is brilliant to have you here. Are, are you ready to go into our time machine? I, I must say this is Tom Baker because, of course, you mentioned <laughs> space and time. Yes. So perhaps as Tom Baker, maybe even as John Pertwee, let's reverse the polarity of the neutron flow and begin our journey. What a fantastic intro. Let's go through the decades. Let's start with the 1960s then, John. You were born just at the tail end of this decade. Is there an item uh, or a thing from the 1960s that kind of resonates for you? I can remember the atmosphere. I've got very early childhood memories. I can remember sitting in a high chair, yeah. um, being given strange food by my mother. I can remember the decor in the living room, yellow crushed velvet curtains, sort of orange and charcoal carpet, yeah. which was the style of the time. Um, I can remember sitting on my dad's knee and my dad pointing me to the TV to watch the moon landings. Oh, wow. With a feeling of, now, look at the TV, son, this is important. These are my earliest recollections of, of that time. I was born in June 1968, so my earliest consciousness was forming at that moment. And when I think back as far as I can go, these are the images that hazily come around. I'm obsessed with TVs from that era. Do you remember what your TV looked like? Was it like a big unit with loads of like oak panelling around it from that kind of time? Yeah, there was. I think there was sort of a brown veneer plastic formica-type casing. The screen was bulbous. It was round. You had um, sort of a dial that you turned, a bit like an old-fashioned radio, and this yeah. would take you through uh, the limited choice of TV stations with beautiful psychedelic effects on the screen. And then soon after that, the buttons came in. You could There was a definite feeling as you press them, click, click, click. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at, say, uh, the Colshaw family photos from back then, are there any aunties or uncles and so on that, uh, that if you were ever to go on, uh, you know, uh, who do you think you are, you'd love to try and track them down and trace them? It would have been a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. Um, my mum and dad were quite old, I suppose, relatively when I was born. My mum was 42, my dad was 50. So I only ever knew one of my grandparents, my grandmother, Mary Teresa. I remember she would sit in her chair and she'd pick up a little tin of travel sweets and very cautiously hover them over to you and you'd eat them and uh, she used to love to watch stars on sunday or bonanza on the tv yeah. um, i remember her husband my grandfather he once had an accident with the scythe where he was you know cutting through the barley or something and chopped the end of his foot off <laughs> <laughs> Which, oh, wow these were the sort of health yeah. and safety victorian <laughs> times um but, but yes, who do you think you are once did uh, an exploratory look down my background? But uh, apparently it was all a bit too boring because all they could go at was pub landlords and farmers. <laughs> That's so. a good combination. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. Wouldn't have filled 60 minutes, but I'm proud of it. Uh, so do you have any family heirlooms or items that that you remember from back in the early days, your first memories with your family that are still in... You know, you, I'm always envious of these people who go Antiques Roadshow and, mm. and have kept and looked after something. Have you got anything that you've, you've had passed on from generations in your, in your family? Yeah, my grandmother used to keep a tin of stamps 
uh, oh, wow. from here from that era. So I've, I've still got some of those, some very old fashioned looking stamps. I think she would, as many grandmothers did, she'd keep things just in case or because yeah. you never know. Um, and some of her jewelry, old fashioned coins from that era. And I've got some of my dad's um, World War Two. Um, he, he got some medals uh, for his service in, in the Second World War. Oh, wow. He was in the Royal Engineers in uh, World War Two. Oh, that's an amazing thing. I mean, one thing that, that terrified me a little bit when I, when I was a kid, going into, like, go to my nan's house and everything in Liverpool was, I don't know if it's the same with your family, but there was kind of religious iconography stuff everywhere. So it was always like, uh, you know, Our Lady of this, that, or yes, whatever. And, and yes. what was, was that a similar kind of thing with you? Was a lot of religious stuff flying around, that kind of thing? Yes, there was. There was, um, you know, crucifixes yes. on the wall. And, uh, you know, one of the, those, those statues of Mary, Mother of God, you know, with, with the gentle raised hand. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, in the twilight, it, just in the shadow, if you caught the image, it would look very ethereal, very ghostly. My dad would actually, uh, on a Friday night, he'd go and play bowls at the local bowling green, which was next to St. Anne's Church. And some of us would go and watch. And there was loads of big fields to play in and trees to climb and so on. Yeah. And there was the church there. And occasionally you'd just sort of poke your head round the door and just have a little look at this cloistered aroma. And you'd walk around and the echo of the building and the, the, the statues evocative of the weeping angels from Doctor Who. Yes. And it was almost like walking walking into this mysterious universe. And I remember once looking at uh, this uh, intriguing statue of a, of a nun, some sort of um, religious uh, figure, and I heard a voice. And uh, this voice uh, suddenly said, always pray to God, always pray to God, he hears your every word. And I turned around, there was a real nun behind me. Oh, fuck! <laughs> That's absolutely terrifying. It was as if the, the statue had spoken. It was as if I was having some sort of, uh, you know, immaculate kind of um, encounter, you know. So let's get you to pick a song from the 60s that has a special place in your heart. Uh, tell us what song you're going for and why you've chosen it then, John. Oh, it would have to be uh, David Bowie, Space Oddity. Uh, one of the things I always love about David Bowie is the sense of him being ahead of his time. There was a strong sense of the 1960s in it. And I can hear Bowie saying this himself, you know, there was also, you know, the 1970s were on their way. And it was almost <laughs> as though, you know, delivering the parts to be plumbed in later for the oncoming decade. But, um, yeah, Space Oddity by David Bowie. This is ground control to Major Tom. That was Space Oddity, written by David Bowie and Paul Buckmaster, performed by David Bowie and released by Parlophone. A little fact about that song for an international listening. In the line, and the papers want to know whose shirt you wear, the phrase, whose shirt you wear, is an English slang for what football team are you a fan of? Uh, Bowie's thinking here being that if you can make it into space, then your opinions on football don't matter. Let's move into the 1970s then, John, the mainstay of your childhood. Obviously, being an amazing impressionist, a mimic usually goes hand in hand with like a vivacious appetite for consuming pop culture and watching people and seeing how people do stuff. Is there a TV show from the 1970s that was iconic for you, sat on the floor watching it and had a big impression on you? Doctor Who, utterly Doctor Who. Um, John Pertwee was my first Doctor and he reminded me of my dad, really. Oh, right, OK. Yes, he was rather like a, he had a similar look. And he'd been in the Royal Navy, and my, my own father had been 
in the Royal Engineers. I love John Pertwee's voice. It interviews. It's got a very sharp uh, resonance. And they asked me to play Doctor Who, and I said, who do you want me to play it as? And they said, well, why don't you be John Pertwee? And I said, well, who the heck's that? Uh, I just love the... Uh, and he was a very protective, paternal doctor with the, the long, flowing cloak. Yeah. And if the Daleks or the Sea Devils or the Ice Warriors appeared, he would know straight what to do. <laughs> Joe, back slowly away back behind the car. Do as I say. I loved all that. And, uh, yes, the Brigadier reminded me of my uh, my Uncle Richard. Doctor, I do wish you'd pay just a little attention. Um, so I love Doctor Who. Was it scary? I mean, it's quite scary, right? Did it scare you, Doctor Who? Just enough. You, you know you're in your family home. The, the back of the sofa's there if you need it. It's always there, yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> your mum's in the kitchen making fish fingers, beans and chips for your tea. So you know you're in a safe place. So you're sort of testing how you can fight against being scared. But yeah, love Doctor Who. Uh, and then later on, on Saturday night, the Mike Yarwood show. Oh, God, I remember. what That was fantastic. He was the first big-time TV impressionist. Yeah. The use of all the split screens, all the multi cameras. Sound zero, dear father. Oh, shut up, Harold. Don't you, de- oh, don't you say that to me, Harold. Oh, dear, oh, dear. And he would just turn like this and create a plethora of characters. And he was the first to do that. And I think all impressionists since then, they, they've followed the door that he kicked open for them. So, yeah, love Mike Yarwood. And so, did you have a happy schooling time? What were your school memories of from, from the 70s? Yes, it was great fun copying the, the teachers yeah. uh, who all seemed to speak in a certain way. I was a bit of a daydreamer at school. I would tend to look out of the window and gather my own thoughts yeah. uh, rather than pay attention, yeah. unless it was a lesson I was really interested in anything to do with astronomy, then my attention would spark. But yes, I enjoy. I enjoyed school, enjoyed the characters, enjoyed people who were there to impersonate. That's the beginning of all kind of mimicry, isn't it? I guess teachers and family members and stuff like that. Was, it, was there a teacher that you used to do your, your, a favourite early impression of? Yes, I remember, I remember the headmistress, uh, Miss Topping, her name was, and she was sort of like the person who might, might have presented stars on Sunday. And she had uh, this type of voice as she addressed <laughs> the class, um, and she was uh, very firm but fair. And uh, I remember her. She's a benevolent memory from my childhood. Oh, fantastic. And was it, was it, uh, were you scared of teachers when you were a kid? I remember there was some absolutely terrifying people that taught me when I was a kid. Yes, I think they would just tend to give you a look. Like that, you know, just <laughs> wide eye, open eyes and just silence. And, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I think maybe that software needs to be reinstalled in this era. <laughs> exactly. How we do that, I'm not sure. Uh, and who, uh, in, whether it's family or friends or, or you know, anyone in your, in your circle, who, who was your biggest influence on you as a kid? I think all family members played a part, really. I did look up very much to my dad and my brother, very good craftspeople. Yeah. Uh, my dad, once he'd left um, the, the army, once he was um, out of the uh, Royal Engineers, immediately became a craftsman, carpenter, joiner. He built everything in our house. Every table, every cupboard, oh, every wow. staircase, the teapot stand. He, he built everything. And part of my happy Saturdays was going into the shed that he built as well and just watching him make things. Yeah. The aroma of wood shavings and just the sound in my dad's shed of... Uh, <laughs> Clunk, as he would cut things to size and shape. Amazing. And did you pick up any of those kind of skills from him at all? Are you, are you good with your hands on, on stuff, making things? I, uh, I made one teapot stand and a photograph stand in the woodwork lessons at school. Yeah. And that was as far as my precision went. 
Fantastic. Well, listen, John, let's get a song on from the 1970s that has a special place in your heart. What would you like to play on and why have you picked this song from the 70s? I will go for uh, Family Ooh. In My Own Time. This was uh, a single that my uh, my brother bought from the local record shop in Ormskirk. Sounds good. Good and... name. They've always got good names, haven't <laughs> oh, they? Oh, yes. The record shops from back in the day. Yeah, lovely inventive names. <laughs> and uh, th- this was the first record, I think, that he'd bought. And it was the first one that I played on the record player when I'd figured out how it worked. The oh, old wow. ultra record player. And... I, l- I love Roger Chapman's voice on this. Lay down easy, stars in my eyes. I love that sort of vibrato, <laughs> that, that wavering. It's unique. And I think it's got the best intro of all time. This will make you jump. I In My Own Time, written by Charlie Whitney and Roger Chapman, performed by Family and released on Reprise Records. Uh, John, next up we move into the 1980s, an iconic decade. Uh, I've always seen the clothes are unmistakable in the 80s compared to any other decade. Is there an item of clothing from the 1980s that sticks in your memory from this era? Oh, Favourite jacket me. or top or something like that that you had? <laughs> you know, so, sometimes, you know, uh, I'm, I'm 53 now. And I might just sort of like look at hipsters going around and think, oh, yeah, the beard, check. Um, every available item of clothing that can be rolled up is rolled up, check. <laughs> the thing that will shut me up talking about that is to look at how I looked in the late 80s. <laughs> what, was your, what was your look then? What kind of vibe were you going for then, John? Oh, dear. It was, I was sort of a bit like psychedelic... Rupert Bear crossed <laughs> with um, that character out the Hair Bear Bunch. I didn't realise how big my hair had got. Because you've got curly hair like myself, yeah. so do your hair kind of go big up, big like yes. a, a fro in many ways? Pretty much, yes. Pretty much. But all the way round. <laughs> um, like Crystal Tips and Alistair, that cartoon character. Just hugeness. And I never I never realised how big it had got. But it was the 80s and Flamboyance was there and, you know, French Connection jackets with the shoulder pads in and yeah. check trousers and... Patent leather brogues and this sort of thing, a little waistcoat, and um, so it's quite cool, really, isn't it? Yeah, so, you know, flamboyants of the eighties. But oh, I look back with uh, sort of um, a mixture of affection and hilarity. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, the eighties was a turbulent time. Uh, was there a news event that uh, affected you that you remember seeing on the news that kind of has stayed with you to the present day? Yes, yeah, so I remember the first announcements of the Falklands War. And I can remember, I think it was Peter Donaldson on Radio 4 speaking about uh, these matters of conflict and war with Argentina and the task force setting sail. Uh, I was 14 at the time. Uh, Me and my dad were having some toast. And I remember knowing my dad's experience of war. And I asked him, will this be all right? Is my brother James going to get called up? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And he said, don't worry, don't worry. It'll be not like it was. It's not like it was. Don't worry. So I do remember that sort of ominous feeling. And I suppose 1984-5, that period, the miners' strike yes. was very strongly in, in the news. I was at Sixth Form College around about that time. And th- there were many of the, um, the, the lads there who were you know, talking about their dads who were, who were connected with that. So that was very much a matter that was um, 
front of mind and all around. From where you were from uh, and, and in, in terms of the miners' strike, did people have to kind of like come out in what favour of the miners or, or other? Was it was it something like you had to declare your, your side of things? In Lancashire, I don't remember it being quite like that. I think there was just general empathy for working people in yeah. this way with that sort of heritage. So was there a, a particular pub or nightclub or that was central to you in your going out kind of formative years in the 80s? Oh, goodness gracious, yes. 1983, that's when it all began. Yes, in Ormskirk, there would be the Brahms and List or the wine bar, as it was known locally. Lovely. And that was the first place of, you know, putting a proper shirt on and a tie with a little pin through the collar <laughs> and my French Connection check trousers and, you know, trying to be uh, ever so cool in the Brahms and list as they come around and Wham is playing and, you know, Kajagoogoo and uh, Scritty Politi. I don't know why I've said Scritty Politi as Boise. I have no idea why. Um, but, yeah, this, this was the era where you first step out and, you know... Uh, adulthood is beckoning. Could you just go to a nightclub, go to a, a pub, a bar, or did you have to get on the bus or the train and go into town type thing? Yes, you, you could walk into Ormskirk and there uh, you would have, uh, you'd have the Brahms and List, you'd have the Bucketh Vine pub, uh, you would have the Chelsea Reach, which was another sort of a wine bar. Half of that was a snooker club as well. The sort of the, the, the understated hipster type people would probably go to the windmill or the Snigsfoot Hotel. Fantastic. The, the pubs, the old geezer pubs, yeah. where they would find solace and they would surround themselves with intriguing character. But yeah, we would go to the, the Brahms and List or maybe catch the bus, go to Southport. Mm, check now, it out. Exactly. Royals, <laughs> the Kingsway, Follies. Good name. Folly. Yes, these were the nightclubs with the, you know, the sticky carpets <laughs> and a Green Lane taxi to take you home again. As late as 2 a.m. Can you believe it? Get 2 out of a.m. <laughs> well, listen, let's get, let's get a song on by a band from the 80s then that you loved. Tell us about this song that you've picked because it's a brilliant song. Yeah, I was wondering what to choose from the 80s. There were, there were many. I could have had Loving the Alien by David Bowie, but we've had that. Something by Level 42. I love Level 42. Yeah, they're great. I love Level 42. I love watching, uh, you know, Mark King playing the slap bass, like... Thunder Thumbs. Like that, exactly. Right under his chin, like that. Do you know what? I, I didn't realise how good he was. He played at an awards thing we went to about three or four years ago, and it, I was sat kind of quite close to where he was, and I've never seen anyone play bass like that before in my entire life. It's just magnificent. Mike Lindup as well, similarly, with, uh, you know, the, the keyboards all stacked up in a Rick Wakeman style, and he's playing them at a 1,000 miles an hour. <laughs> it's as if he's got eight arms to achieve that sound. <laughs> so I could have chosen that. but I've chosen Jewel by Propaganda. It just really stuck out to me at the time, 1985. Does it remind you of any of these venues that you've just been telling us about in particular? Yeah, I think it does. I think it reminds me of travelling to uh, Amsterdam on a school trip for the first time. Oh, wow. Which was quite an adventure of discovery, you know, <laughs> accidentally wandering up streets that we shouldn't and, you know, <laughs> running off like kids in the Beano. I love Claudia Brooken's voice on this and just the production of it. And it just stuck out as being different and it really just chimes with being 16 and 17 and the feeling of new possibilities coming and uh, life just starting to get interesting Jewel, written by Claudia Bruken. 
Michael Mertens and Ralph Dorper, performed by Propaganda, released by Island Records. Well, let's leave the 80s behind, John, and move into the 1990s, a decade of optimism and partying and cool Britannia and all that kind of thing. Did you feel that wave of pride in being British back in the 90s? Yes, I I think so. The whole arrival of Britpop and uh, cool Britannia reminds me of moving to London, really, in my uh, mid-20s. Yeah. Just the, the excitement and sense of possibility of that and being sort of both swamped and overwhelmed, but also powerfully inspired by uh, moving to the capital city. I was working on The Big Breakfast. Oh, wow. I was. I was a character on The Big Breakfast. (laughs) They called me the man of a thousand voices. And whenever something was needed, some little uh, contribution to a sketch or a game in the garden, something like that, I'd be the commentator. And it like a good, fun programme to work on that. People were having a good time on it. Oh, absolutely. Great, great fun. In the summer of uh, 1996, that, that whole Britpop time was really, really strengthening then. And, you know, you get up at four in the morning and you're all miserable and all trying to wake up. As soon as you walk into the big breakfast garden and house, you've no choice but to be awake. Yeah. And it's really, really happy, vibrant colours, kind of uh, happy memories of, of, of working on the big breakfast in those days. And they had some amazing people come and sit on the bed and chat to people and all that kind of stuff. It's, yes. They had some amazing guests, didn't they, on the oh, big breakfast? Oh, they really did. I, I remember second time I've been really, truly starstruck was when uh, standing there in front of the uh, the front door of the big breakfast house, uh, looking out over the garden, perhaps with the same sense of wonder that he had uh, beholden the magnificent desolation of the moon, there was Buzz Aldrin. Oh, wow. Wow. Some people, they have a presence. Yeah. What a presence. And uh, I, I couldn't think of anything to say to him other than, uh, sir, good morning. <laughs> but that was enough. Buzz Aldrin. Because you're, you're into your astronomy. Yeah. And so I always get astrology and astronomy mixed up, and that's a bad thing. <laughs> so for you, he's, he's like a rock star in your field of interest, I guess. Yes, incredible. There's just a handful of people who have uh, broken the bonds of the Earth's gravity yeah. to step on another world. That's what human beings do, I think. Ever since we stepped out of our caves two million years ago, we've travelled forward, we've explored we have found new lands, and I think we always will. And maybe in our lifetime, hopefully in our lifetime, we'll see the start of human beings becoming a, a multi-planetary species. So what are your thoughts on going, this thing now where you've got like um, billionaire space tourists, but they're kind of just going really high rather yeah. than going into like, you know, this is not putting someone on the moon. Well, I think it's part of the story. I think it's part of the general move towards yeah. um, the International Space Station with the astronauts who are based there. That has established the fact that living and working in space day after day after day, is now just something that we do. And I think just scratching the top of the atmosphere with the space tourism is another part of the story. It's the normalisation of us making our steps further into space. Another good reason as to why um, I'm so pro-space travel is that it gets countries working together uh, in a very positive way. Hmm. Different nations of scientists work much better together than different nations of politicians do. So I think that spreads out uh, our civilization in a positive way. And if we're aiming to the stars, I think the Earth is much more likely to be united and working together. As Patrick Moore always used to say, yes, I'm all for it and we'll need to work internationally. And I I think it's a very positive step indeed. (laughs) That's fantastic. Uh, Well, listen, John, let's get a 
let's get a song from the 1990s on. So many great songs, so much great music to pick. What song have you gone for and why? I've uh, gone for George Michael. I, lo- I love George Michael. What a songwriter. What a voice from yep. another realm. And Praying for Time by George Michael. For me, this is George. It is absolute best. And is there anything in particular this reminds you of from that decade? I think it reminds me of the start of the decade, really. Um, and just the sense of possibility that was that was coming, the sense of a, a new start. Also, I think I, I love the way that George Michael was really, really going deep with this. And I, I love the sense of philosophy that he brought to it. And it's one of those that I can press play and if it plays 10 times in a row that's fine uh, and it's lovely to hear it now praying for time written and performed by george michael and released by epic Okay, let's walk on into the uh, noughties then. The year 2000, the dawn of the millennium, uh, John. A strange time, kind of everyone worried about the millennium bug. We're kind of au fait with bugs now, aren't <laughs> yes, we? Yes. Uh, do you remember the kind of build-up to the millennium? Like it was like a, didn't know what was going to happen, planes were going to fall out the sky and all that stuff. They, they kind of had us scared, didn't they? Yes, ex- exactly. There were public information films made about all of this. You know, what to do, stay in your home and keep <laughs> the lights off. And none of it came to be. It was just, just a little digital click, you know. That was always ever going to be. It was fine. But um, yes, it was uh, the, the, the sense of a huge moment in time, a huge sort of marker in terms of the date between then and now. Not just a year, not just a decade, yep. not just a century, but a thousand years. What a borderline of time to live across. <laughs> yes, what shall greet us? What shall greet us? Yes. But everything sort of just mushed up and became a bit homogenised, <laughs> didn't did. it, really? Where did you see in the millennium? Do you remember where you were? Yes, I was in, uh, I was in, I was in London. Uh, I'd been at a little uh, house party with some friends and at about 20 past 11, we thought, let's catch the tube and let's go into town. We saw the fireworks, just the, the sense of celebration and uh, jubilation in the air. There was a real strong feeling that uh, a great moment had happened. Yeah. It was like a festival across the entire city of London. And I, uh, I, f- I phoned up my parents, just shared the moment with them. I know my dad had a glass of uh, white and Mackay whiskey. My mum got some gin. Oh, bless And her. we just saw over the midnight borderline. And I was just describing the fireworks. <laughs> she said, they do make some very loud bangs, Jonathan. Dear, oh dear. <laughs> well, speaking of phones, she was going to ask you, the, the noughties is when people started to get personal phones, mobile phones. Do you remember what your, your first ever mobile phone or bit of tech was, John? Yes, I, I, mine was um, mine went back to 1995. It was a Nokia, one where you Whoa. pulled out the aerial and you could twang it. So you were an early adopter in many ways. Yes, I was, because I was always running late for voice sessions <laughs> and I needed to phone ahead and tell them, because you know, <laughs> I'm a quite a poor timekeeper um so yes it was it was a nokia and if you wanted to you could click on another battery which made it like the motorola brick once again if you wanted to Uh, do you like those things being in your life now there's part of it that's very handy i I like about 20 percent of it maybe 23 percent a little bit more but there's a lot that i don't like i'm concerned as to how addictive they can be how addictive social media can be how that is taking us away from just interacting with each other in terms of a conversation in terms of proper interaction i think it makes debate 
immensely difficult. Everything goes into fragmented pieces. Yeah. People say things just for the attention of being the one to say it rather than caring about the issue. And it's sent it into this mad fizz, mad fizz, like a snowstorm ornament that's been shaken. And I think it's stopping us connecting with what we really need to, to be properly centred and to properly feel right. I think we've got to work that out and I'm sure we will. I'm sure the next generation will come along and find it all a bit passe and maybe that'll be the process of it. Too many selfies is a rather bizarre thing. And, you know, those people who just, like, walk along, you know, the street like that and they're having a conversation just, you know, to nobody, waving their arms about, just like that, just having... I'd find that embarrassing. I'm quite private about my conversations. Yeah. Self-awareness has shifted to a place where... I find it quite bizarre. <laughs> but I suppose I'm a 53-year-old. That's my job. But I, I, I say it with caution. But no, it's it's lovely. There's so much of it that's handy. Google Maps is a lifesaver. It is, isn't it? And having your record collection on a phone and just Bluetooth headphones, click, click, that's good. Train journeys with the phone, are they pass quickly now. What do we used to do on long train journeys? Oh, just compress and look miserable <laughs> and eat poor quality biscuits. Now you can actually, it can be productive. So that side of it, is great. Uh, well, let's get back to the music then. Let's pick a song from the noughties, the 2000s, that has a special place for you. Uh, what song have you picked and, and why have you picked this one, John? Uh, let's go for Strong by Robbie Williams. I love his attitude around about this time. Yeah. This is where his solo career is really cementing in. It's peak Robbie, this, this yeah, decade, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and I, I just love his attitude and, yeah, Strong by Robbie Williams. And does it remind you of any particular moment in time from that particular decade, would you say? I suppose it was, uh, yeah, working, uh, working on national radio. I don't know whether we're allowed to say names of other stations. Of yes, working with Chris Moyles yep. at the time, which was immensely exciting. He's a great pal even now. Um, and just being part of all, of all of that. How old was I at the time? 33, 34. Lovely age to be that. Yeah. Lovely age to be. Um, and you've still got your youth, but you've got a little bit of wisdom of adulthood, partly. So it's, it's a nice blend. And this is one of those anthems of that time. Strong, written by Guy Chambers and Robbie Williams, performed by Robbie Williams, released via Chrysalis. Robbie wrote the song in Germany after an encounter with obsessive fans that he said, and I quote, scared the living daylights out of him. Hence the lyrics, you think that I'm strong, you're wrong. Let's leave the noughties behind then, John, and move into the 2010s. Little did we know what was about to hit us with the pandemic and everything when you look back in the 2010s. Do you look back on pre-pandemic life with kind of warm nostalgia now, bearing in mind what we're going through at the moment? I suppose you do. The, the interesting thing is the way that we miss things that we once hated. That's uh, you know, uh, Tottenham Court Road tube station at its busiest at half five on a Friday night. Oh, I'd, uh, I'd do anything to queue to get back in there again. It's a novelty to Isn't experience it? that now. It's, it, the nostalgia does come. But it's taught us to just um, grab the simple things, I think. Yeah. Uh, and just ap appreciate the quietness and the simplicity. And were you okay during lockdown? How did you do in terms of Staying at home and everything. Were you okay? Were you impatient? I uh, I went back home to Lancashire. It, it actually coincided with my moving back to Lancashire. I'd lived in London for 26 years and I just felt that I'd rather now just spend a little bit more time up in Lancashire. So I, I, I spent my time there. Support bubble with my brother and his wife and um, family members and just uh, learned how to 
record remotely. Yeah. Um, recording quite a few Doctor Who dramas with Big Finish remotely. And um, after dinner speeches done over Zoom. Oh, wow, yeah. Which are a, a slightly intriguing thing. It's like a little miniature TV show it becomes. But just trying to muddle through and get by and um, find the positivity and the simplicity wherever you can. And what was it like to go back to kind of home, having been in London for so long? I was ready to do that. I, I, I was ready. I always uh, use the analogy, rather than being based in London and going home for a rest, I'll base in Lancashire and nip into London for a bit of rock and roll, yeah. like right now. Uh, so that's the way round. I'd rather do it these days, I think. Well, let's get a song on from the 2010s that has, you know, is, is important to you, John. Uh, again, you picked an artist now that I'm not familiar with. Tell us about uh, this person and why you've picked this song. Yes, Andy Osho and Redemption Days. Yeah. Uh, I remember um, listening to this at the time of the Olympics yes. uh, when I was playing King Arthur in Spamalot. So wow. this was one of those walking-to-work tunes that I'd often hear. One amazing time that was during the Olympics, in, oh, not just for yeah. London, but for the whole country. Yes, exactly. It was absolutely incredible. We felt good about ourselves. There was a, a wonderful sense of celebration. Uh, the world was watching Danny Boyle's uh, opening ceremony. Amazing. Fantastic. The Queen parachuting into uh, the stadium <laughs> with James Bond. We should have a good listen and think back to that time and, and borrow a bit of that spirit and plonk it right back into the present day. <laughs> Redemption Days, written and performed by Josh Osho, released via Island Records, a single full of pride and euphoria. And we arrive back then safely to the present day, the 2020s. Uh, John, sitting here now, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your 10-year-old self? I would say uh, just keep your belief. Work hard, but keep your belief. Um, and I, I always say that to any young people, if they're ever hesitant about their ambitions or they don't think they can reach their full potential, always have that belief. Never think that it's impossible and go after it and uh, do it with a vengeance. Have that belief. Put in the hours and the good luck will come in to help you. If you put in the hard work, good luck will pop along and go into the mix. That's my philosophy anyway. As an elite impressionist, is there an impression that you've never been able to master and it's kind of stuck in your craw up until this day? <laughs> it's been frustrated you? It was always David Cameron. Yeah, you know, it's quite anodyne, you know, just generic posh, repeated hand gesture in that sort of way. And um, you just sort of wander on to the next one. You know, do Michael Gove, something like that. Hello, gooby, gooby, gooby. <laughs> or maybe I would just focus on the ones that I like, Professor Brian Cox, with that, with that uh, majesty of the stars and the wider universe. Or maybe John Bishop, you know, he's got a lovely manner of talking and a great way. This is a great tone in which to deliver a great gag. <laughs> that is fantastic. That is absolutely spot on him. Uh, is there a period of time in history then that you weren't alive in that you'd like to travel to and have a little explore in for a bit? Oh, the Cretaceous period. Wow, is I was that expecting that. Is that allowed? <laughs> I think this inspires a David Attenborough voice on here. We see... The bull triceratops, a great tank evocative of the rhino of many millions of years of the future. But what incredible beings they are. Yes, I'd love to see the dinosaurs and just get a sense of, wow, 
just to see the real dinosaurs. What yeah. magnificent creatures. Well, listen, John Conshaw, it has been an honour going through the decades with you. Is there a song from the present day that we can wrap things up with uh, to play with you to conclude this week's podcast? I think let's have Sam Fender. Let's have Sam Fender. I love his voice. Not only can his voice be very haunting, but it can command an entire arena, an entire festival as well. So, uh, yeah, Sam Fender. Fantastic song, John Corshaw. Thank you so much. Seventeen Going Under, written and performed by Sam Fender and released by Polydor. A semi-autobiographical song, the line that really hits home for me uh, and the one that I think we can all resonate with in today's times is, I see my mother, the DWP, see a number. She cries on the floor, encumbered. I'm 17 going under. So powerful that, the idea of Sam considering becoming a drug dealer to help his household and his family out of poverty. And there you have it, concluding another trip through the decades. If you like any of the music you've heard, Absolute Radio has a station for you. From the grunge and indie of the 90s to the brand new music over on Absolute Radio 20s, there's something for everyone.